Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a special edition of New Scientist Weekly, which I have to say has just won Podcast of the Year 2021 at the Publishers Podcast Awards last night. Yay! <laughs> Thanks to everyone who's been on the show over the last year and most of all to you for listening. Now, as I say, it's a special issue of the show. It's Earth Day as we're recording this and you don't need to be told what a crucial moment we're at in terms of the planetary emergency uh, it's make or break time, as we say in the magazine this week. But don't just take my word for it. Here's Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General. 2021 must be the year to reconcile humanity with nature. Until now, we have been destroying our planet. We have been abusing it as if we had a spare one. Guterres went on to make the point that if you compare Earth's resources to a calendar year, we've used one third of the resources in the last 0.2 seconds. And obviously it can't go on. As you may expect, we're all over this stuff in New Scientist. And in the magazine, we've recently published five pieces looking at the climate and biodiversity crises in association with UNIP, the United Nations Environment Programme. And we've also just done a free live event in association with UNIP called Rescue Plan for Nature. And if you visit newscientist.com slash events, you'll be able to watch that too. So today we wanted to reflect all of that and take stock of where we are and to that end, we've assembled a panel to chew it all over. Uh, so let's meet them. From the Centre for Environment Policy at Imperial College London, we've got Tilly Collins. From the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment, Bonnie Waring. And we've got from New Scientist two veteran reporters, by which I mean very, very experienced report, environment reporters, <laughs> Michael Page and Adam Vaughan. Welcome to you all. Hello. Thank you. Good morning. How's everyone feeling on Earth Day? I, I have a tinge of optimism this year. I think that we are beginning to see some kind of reconciliation between greenwash and action, that actually people are starting to pay attention properly and review their lives. That's brilliant. That's what we like to hear. We start with a tinge of optimism. Well, actually, let's start with, with uh, we'll get on to more optimism for sure later and solutions to all of this. But let's start with um What's something that at the moment is is shocking you or angering you? Does anyone want to say something that's really grating or frightening you at the moment? Well, I think I mean I, I don't really know where to start, Rowan, but <laughs> I guess the uh, I think on on the climate side, one of the things for me is just really the disconnect between the mood music on carbon emissions cuts and the actual numbers. I was really struck by this UN synthesis report um, recently, which showed that even with all these 
new pledges in the last few months uh, from the EU's to the UK's. By 2030, carbon emissions are going to still be just 0.5%, 0.5 down on 2010 levels. Um, and listeners will probably be familiar that we need, the IPCC said a few years ago that we need to get roughly half of um, 2010 emissions by 2030. So just that really brought it home for me. And I guess on the nature side, it's just probably the fact that the world missed every single one of its 20 biodiversity targets that it set a decade ago. I think those are probably the two things that jump out for me. Yeah, well, I I think the the thing that actually really angers me is this uh, this huge disconnect between the action we're taking on climate and the action we need to take to conserve wildlife and protect biodiversity. And the prime example is that is is biofuels, which are tremendously damaging for the environment and being pushed as this this climate solution. And to give one specific example, I think we all know about palm oil. Palm oil is driving deforestation in, in countries like Indonesia and wiping out the environment for orangutans. But people think palm oil is something that's used in food. In in the European Union, half of the palm oil is turned into biodiesel and burnt in trucks and cars. And what's worse, it's been calculated that the emissions from doing that are three times higher than if we use fossil fuels. So it's just an absolutely <laughs> crazy thing to do. And it's still going on. There's some countries that are trying to, to sort of phase it out, but it's still happening. Bonnie, do you want to talk about how the, the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis interact with each other a bit more? Sure. The climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis are really closely related. So both have their roots directly in human activity, fossil fuel burning for the climate. For biodiversity, it's really about habitat loss, over-exploitation of plants and animals, um, and the introduction of invasive species. Both of the crises have really accelerated just over the past couple of decades, keeping pace with the growth of the human population. And I think the thing that's most concerning is that these crises are going to amplify each other. Because research has shown that as the climate continues to warm, we're going to see an acceleration of extinction directly due to climate change. So our best research on this says that if we let the planet warm four degrees Celsius, we could lose up to one in six species, which is absolutely catastrophic. And biodiversity loss, on the other hand, is a problem for our society's resilience to the climate because other excellent research has shown that the stability of ecosystems, their ability to withstand disturbance, is tightly correlated to the biodiversity they contain. So really, um, we have two runaway crises that are tightly interlinked and are going to mutually make each other's effects worse. Um, Tilly, from a policy point of view, how do we go about implementing integrated measures to tackle biodiversity and climate crises? I think a lot of people are looking at this right now. And the, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, have actually helped give a real focus to that. One of the big problems we have is enforcement that many countries will produce laws that require a commitment, and these laws stand up internationally, but that there isn't the capacity and the institutional capacity within countries to support enforcement of the laws. So a law may come, but it can't be supported or enforced, and that's a real tragedy on a grand scale. And we need to to be doing a lot of institutional support worldwide to give help in that way. Does that mean that the, the legal commitment that countries like the UK have got to get to net zero by 2050 or whatever year they put in, that, that's a legal commitment? But are you saying that that has got no teeth, really? 
Well, I think here we're quite fortunate in that we have a, a functional legal system and we have got recourse to being able to sue government in that way. And, and people like Client Earth, organisations like Client Earth, work very hard to help hold government to account here. But there are many countries in the world that are in a much more critical place that simply do not have that kind of legal structure and enforcement at a sufficient standard. Yeah, I mean, as, as Tilly says, I mean, in the UK, you know, Lord Deben, who's at the head of the uh, Climate Change Committee, you know, he said as much before that, you know, UK government could be sued, could face legal action if, you know, it breaches its carbon targets, which is currently on track to breach some of its carbon targets later this decade. So that, that may come to pass, who knows? Uh, I guess the, the, the key difference is on the international agreements, so things like the Paris Agreement, that really doesn't have any teeth. That really is about international peer pressure and sort of public shame and reputation and stuff. You know, there is there is actually a mechanism, but no one's going to overuse it. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's that really is a sort of about reputation rather than like, be, you know, states being sued on the international side. I think there is a problem even in the UK. So uh, Tilly mentioned client earth. They won a series of cases over the years about air pollution in the UK. The government was told to take action. It still hasn't done it. Nothing's happened. As Tilly said at the beginning, there is a tinge of optimism here. We have got some momentum building, certainly towards uh, COP26, the climate summit. But there isn't the same momentum that behind COP15, the biodiversity summit that um, has been delayed. You know, why is that? Is that we've got the 1.5 degrees target for from Paris. Do we need something similar, something like that for the biodiversity? There is a sort of growing support, um, not just in academia and NGO land, but in, in politics as well for this 30 by 30 campaign, which is to have 30% of the world's land and seas protected by 2030. But nonetheless, you know, I mean, some, some people have, you know, there was a comment piece in science last year, for example, calling for a single target on biodiversity based around species extinction. So this would be kind of equivalent to the 1.5, 2 degree target of Paris, which I wouldn't quite see, say the man and the woman in the street know, but does have some sort of wider kind of public awareness, which certainly can't be said of the biodiversity ones. But I mean, I've spoke to people at the time that I was suggested, and generally the people I've spoken to, the experts I've spoken to, think that biodiversity is too multifaceted a problem to reduced to one target it's actually better to have the sort of suite of indicators we have now and, and the problem with biodiversity loss is it's, it's, it's like even more complicated than climate change you know, climate change is bad enough aimed to try and get rid of all those points of fossil fuels biodiversity loss is fundamentally tied up in our models of economic growth it's not even as simple as just saying eat less meat and dairy it's just it's so much more complicated about that because it's tied up with as you know Tilly and Bonnie have sort of alluded to it's tied up around population growth and economic you know countries becoming more affluent um, those are, you know, some of the reasons that lands get changed, and also changing diets is really tricky because it's it's bound up with a load of cultural stuff. But I think that generally, I think the feeling amongst people I've spoken to is that actually, it's not the targets that are a problem; it's how we're going about tackling them. The targets are also slightly tricky in in the sense that we've probably got quite a huge lag of biodiversity loss that will continue even after we've started to really improve how we handle the world. So if we, if we set a, any kind of target in an optimistic way, we're bound to fail it. So having the diverse suite of indicators works much, much better because we will be able to see changes in the trajectory 
which will help us create optimism. And we need optimism in order to be able to get people's buy-in. People, you know, us are alarmed by doom and gloom, but unless we can say actually what you're doing is having some effect, people are never going to give a full buy-in on this. I think the biodiversity agenda is just really struggling as well because China, it's not clear that China knows what it wants out of the biodiversity summit in October this year. You know, it, re- it really isn't clear. No, you know, there was talk about tying it in with you know nature solutions for climate and so on, and but that, there's just been not a lot of clear messaging out of China. And I think you know you just compare that to the sort of leadership that's being shown on the climate side in COP twenty. You know, with the US obviously in recent months and today. And, you know, for all its faults, the UK, you know, has shown some leadership with Italy on that. So it's just, I don't know, it's just not, there's not the leadership on the biodiversity side of things. We've mentioned two points there, which which really frightened me. I mean, this idea that the biodiversity crisis is so intrinsically tied up with our economic model that we have to change that model to tackle biodiversity. That's that's a hugely demanding thing to do. And are, are we going to be able to do it? And then this idea of that there's this lag to extinctions. It's sometimes called extinction debt. Uh, I think there was a study a few years ago showing that the extinctions happening in Europe now are more closely related to what happened a century ago than to what's actually happening now. So the full consequences of what we're doing now might not play out for sort of hundreds, even even thousands of years. And uh, to give an example of why why that's the case, so imagine you've got a, a forest tree where the, the seeds are, are spread by elephants. So if those elephants go extinct, the trees are going to be around for a while because they're nice big trees and they might survive for hundreds of years, but gradually those trees are going to disappear. And then there might be a whole host of other species that depend on that particular tree. And so then once all those trees disappear, those species disappear. And so you can see that there can be these huge... Uh, so they're called cascading ecological effects of, of extinctions. Now it's time for a quick break and a message from Jim Al-Khalili. Hi, I'm Jim Al-Khalili, interrupting your podcast to tell you about What I Believe, a podcast by Humanists UK, exploring the values, convictions and opinions of humanists in the public eye. Each week you'll get to listen to scientists like Richard Dawkins, Helen Chersky, Alice Roberts and me discussing our approaches to life. New episodes go live each Thursday and are available on all the usual places you get your podcasts. Curious? Subscribe and listen to the What I Believe podcast today. And we're back. Uh Bonnie, you work on the carbon cycle and how ecosystems respond and feed back on climate change. Do you want to talk about some nature-based solutions and things that we can do to tackle both crises, maybe tree planting especially? Yeah, so currently there's huge interest in restoring natural ecosystems, often through tree planting. Um, And this is because plants can absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turn it into biomass which is amazing. So naturally, ecosystems have the capacity to reduce atmospheric CO2, tackling the climate crisis. Now, these solutions offer the potential for win-win, where we draw down atmospheric CO2 and conserve biodiversity, which would be wonderful addressing both crises at once. But if some of these um, nature-based strategies are carried out in the wrong way, we can have no effect or even worsen the climate crisis and cause a loss of biodiversity. 
So an example of this, um, to date, the largest tree planting campaign in the world is in China. It's actually been going on since the 70s. It was um, started to combat desertification. But due to the way that the species were chosen and where they were planted, they've seen declines in biodiversity by creating an artificial forest that's not suited to the ecosystem. So we need to think really carefully about the way that nature-based solutions are employed um, if we really want to be having a positive impact on the twin crises. And we need to work with local people in whatever region we're implementing some ecosystem restoration project in. Tilly, do you want to talk about that, about how we work with people and to tackle problems, get people on side? I I think it's been one of the really big messages to come out of modern conservation research is that you can't do anything without local buy-in. And things are only sustainable if you have local buy-in. So you have... You have to engage with the people who live there so that they understand the the benefits and consequences of action or inaction. And now that we have that understanding, it means that conservation happens on a, a much more detailed and local level. And conservation projects are starting to be much more successful because the benefits of the restoration are very clear in many circumstances. That is is a key insight. And We are working towards that on many, many scales now. And I would say that's particularly important because many of these nature-based schemes involve habitat creation or expansion uh, in the developing world. It's tropical forests that grow the fastest and are therefore perceived to have the largest climate impact. So that needs to be considered especially carefully when countries North America, Europe, China are considering large-scale nature-based climate solutions in equatorial regions, how are the local communities going to benefit? How is their information, their input into the project going to be considered in order to ensure that it's a success? What about the balance between personal action that we often hear about, like, you know, cutting down on flying and cutting back on meat and dairy and action at a higher state level? Like sometimes you hear people say, oh, there's no point me doing anything because of China, but, you know, chucking so much emissions into the atmosphere. What's the comeback to that, that, getting that balance right? I always say that people should employ a two pronged approach when they're thinking about environmental problems. And the first prong is to do something in your personal life that makes an effective difference. And the second prong is to put pressure on your political representatives. But part of the benefit, I think, of making a personal decision, even though we know that we can't completely solve the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis just through personal choice, is giving yourself that sense of optimism. I'm sure Tilly can talk about this further, giving yourself the sense that you're doing something positive. And if possible, can you make that action something that actually brings you a little bit of joy instead of just negating something? So can you plant a pollinator garden and, you know, in your front garden and then enjoy the bees that come, you're making a difference, but you get something out of it. And I think that can sort of sustain you a little bit through the onslaught of bad news. And I think it also normalizes such actions. So not only do you do it and find it personally satisfying, but the people around you see that that's what's happening. So if you've got a pollinator friendly front garden, other people will see that. If you cycle to work, other people will find that actually cycling to work isn't that difficult a thing. So by by obviously doing things and you know, wearing the same dress repeatedly, <laughs> buying less, we normalise such actions. 
I completely agree with everything people say, and I think it's it's obviously both. We've got to act individually, and also the governments have to act. I think it's also important that we do the right thing. There are some myths around. For instance, a lot of people think eating locally is 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 all sort of buying local food is always greener. That that's simply not the case. Lots of studies show that air miles don't actually matter in terms of of carbon emissions in food. And then another very contentious issue is intensive farming and there's this idea that intensive farming is really bad and sort of organic farming is good. Well, intensive farming is bad, but if you look at it per unit of food produced, it's often less bad than less intensive ways of farming, such as organic. The reason is from a global perspective, if you're using low intensive farming in a Western country and you're using 100 hectares where you could be using just 50, then that's sort of another 50, 100 or even 500 hectares that need a farmland that are needed somewhere else to, to grow the same amount of food. So actually, yeah, I'm not saying intensive farming is good, but it can be better in terms of the overall impact. Yes, and that's a ve- that's something that people find very difficult to absorb. It's a very tricky situation. I think that there is also some optimism in, in parts of farming and in the food system that we are starting to look at species which cope well with intensive farming. A lot of the insect species that we're beginning to farm on a much larger scale now are pre-adapted to being farmed intensively, whereas cattle are certainly not. You know, they're adapted to being ranging creatures and keeping them so confined is an ethically dubious way to raise them. Ditto chickens, I think. Dubious to say the least. Um, In the IPCC scenarios for warming, there is a lot of uh, negative emissions assumed. So they, they assume the ability to draw down a lot of carbon dioxide that we've already put into the atmosphere. Where are we on that, on negative emissions? There are a variety of strategies to draw down carbon from the atmosphere. And each strategy has different costs in terms of the financial investment to develop the technology, the energy input required, water or land input required in the case of bioenergy or forest expansion. And then a benefit in terms of the you know, ultimate potential for how much carbon dioxide to draw down. My best understanding now where we are today is not really the only strategies that make financial sense with carbon as it's currently priced are expansion of forests, potentially better management of soils and agriculture, and bioenergy, which has its own environmental challenges that I think others can speak to. Strategies like uh, direct air capture, where we basically filter carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sequester it away, totally amazing if they worked. Right now, too expensive and not realistic, despite the fact that many of our emissions targets would require carbon drawdown on the scale offered by such technologies. And the final point that I want to make is I think the craze right now for nature-based climate solutions is because of the recognition that these are the only financially viable strategies right now. But we know that carbon drawdown through nature is finite. There's only so much vegetation that you can fit on land. And so that is never, ever going to be able to offset the scale of emissions um, that our society is producing. I think what is happening is there is a lot of action and a lot of talk you know, with the direct air capture stuff because of net zero and because companies and, and governments are setting targets, people like Microsoft setting one for like being carbon negative by 2030, they can't do that without some of these technologies. But I, I think the other point I'd make is on the 
there's a real disconnect on the reforestation and deforestation side of things. So, you know, the amount of annual rates of deforestation now, so deforestation in the tropics went up again last year, the amount of annual deforestation at the moment is enough to wipe out the carbon savings from even the theoretical maximum of reforestation rates. So there's just such a disconnect between nice sounding of pledges about planting trees and actually protecting the trees we've got. Yeah. And from a carbon perspective, protecting the trees we've got is more effective anyway. And from a biodiversity perspective, a lot of the trees that we're planting need to be managed into the future. So we're talking about planting trees, but there's very little post hoc care. So part of that is that the carbon that's locked up as wood needs to be made good use of long term. We need to be coming up with better timber technologies again and use timber technologies to substitute for a lot of concrete. We have to be using cross-laminate timbers that will lock down that carbon for a long period of time because leaving, leaving it standing in a forest will often limit the capacity of that forest to continue absorbing carbon at a high level. So to keep a forest productive, we may have to crop them, make good long-term use of that wood. And in cropping them, we create a a more diverse environment because we prevent it from going to a, a climax community. And we can have different areas and mosaics of habitats that have different insects. I would dispute that for some areas of the world. I think what you're talking about is true in areas where the forests have already been intensively managed for some time. In relatively unmanaged, particularly tropical forests, for biodiversity and for carbon, the best thing we can do is leave them alone. Yes, I I would agree with that in tropical forests. I'm talking about areas where we're aforesting at the moment. Yes. I think it's also... What we absolutely shouldn't be doing is, is burning wood from forests. That's just really, you know, if we can use it to build, that's so much better than sort of sticking it in a furnace and burning it for energy. That's a really bad idea. Um, what about a couple of years ago when the Brazilian environment minister said that we should pay Brazil or rich countries should pay Brazil not to destroy the Amazon? Um, people were outraged by that. But what, what do you think of that idea? I'm strongly in favour of it. Well, Norway did it. Norway did actually pay them. Yeah, I think that payment for ecosystem services has proved to be effective in many places. And if if the ecosystem services is provided by an intact forest, then it's something we should be looking at seriously. Every single person alive on this planet today benefits from the Amazon. One in 10 species on our planet live in the Amazon. It regulates the climate around the globe. It is a huge carbon reserve that is protecting carbon from going back into the atmosphere. We all benefit from the Amazon as it is. So we as a global community should pay to keep it intact. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a good idea. It's just the politics make it really hard, right? Germany and Norway both stopped paying because Brazil changed the rules around how the money would be dispersed. And so I just think it's very hard to pay Brazil at the moment um, with the policy that Bolsonaro is sort of uh, is advancing but equally like it's not it's not easy there's no easy answers I think on the Amazon because equally like you know the other sort of approach of kind of trade pressure and applying international pressure as suggested people like people like Macron that may backfire at a domestic level too if you think of why Bolsonaro was elected in the first place and issues around sovereignty and stuff so I don't know some people I speak to say that progressive companies in Brazil are the answer I, I don't know I, do, I don't think anyone has an easy answer beyond hopefully maybe a, a new government There's actually two in this context. A study recently came out that shows some of the most ecologically intact remaining ecosystems on Earth are 
managed by traditional societies. And so there's a big extent to which, you know, who we really should be paying or compensating is those communities, not necessarily the government of Brazil. It's a big thing for for billionaires at the moment to set up green initiatives and to, um, you know, show themselves to be into this stuff. What do the panel think about that? I think anyone who's willing to pay into conserving biodiversity and addressing climate change is fabulous. <laughs> but they have to do it well. I mean, I think that's the issue, isn't it? How, how do you... There's no sort of regulation or accountability for, for billionaires in the same way that there is for governments. I mean, I, yes, I, I think it's a good thing. I, I do also... I, I find it hard to stomach when, say, someone like Richard Branson, who owns an airline and wants to promote space tourism is also sort of pushing green solutions. You know, I mean, close down the airline, stop promoting space tourism is probably the best thing you could do for for greening the planet. I was just going to address the dozens of billionaires that I'm sure are listening to this podcast right now. Um, But I I also think that, um, (laughs) you know, there can be a discomfort with the absence of certainty in the scientific process, with the absence of hard answers. And so anyone devoting money to solving a problem, we as a scientific community are really grappling with the best way to do this. Um, And so you're going to need to put in some legwork too to try and understand those complexities. And what the money should really go to is funding us to find the best idea, but there's not not an easy ready-made solution already out there. And if anyone says it's going to be quick and easy, to absorb a huge amount of carbon or save a huge number of species, that's probably not true. Okay. Um, does anyone want to end with some uh, message of optimism and uh, looking at the momentum that we're starting to build and see where we can go from now for this year, this crucial year? One thing for me is that nature is actually very resilient. And if we just give it a chance, if we leave some land for wildlife and we don't overexploit it. In a lot of cases, it's it's going to bounce back. And uh, when I was writing some of the features you were referring to at, at the beginning, what, one of the things someone said to me is, in a lot of cases, we don't have to plant trees. We just have to let the land recover. That's all we need to do. I think I'd just say, remind people, you can make a difference. You know, if it's your bag and when it's safe to do so COVID-wise, get out and protest. You know, 2019, we saw a wave of climate protests, and that really makes a difference. You know, it's no... I don't think it's any um, coincidence that, like, you know, the UK government waved through a net zero law with absolutely no no whimper of protest when school kids were protesting outside Parliament in the months beforehand. Um, I think it makes a huge difference. And if you are in England, Wales or Scotland, then obviously in the coming weeks, you'll have the chance to vote at a local level for the party with, you know, the candidates with the best environmental policies. So, So use your vote. Yes, absolutely. Use your vote, set a good example, normalise behaviours. And I think business is finally starting to listen to to both people and, and government and that we are going to be getting decent sustainability metrics and measures coming into the business world. So we will have sticks as well as carrots, which is great. Okay, that's all we've got time for. We'll obviously be coming back to all these issues in future episodes and in the magazine every week we cover this sort of thing. And that does remind me, uh, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist as a podcast listener. Uh, you get 20% off if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe. So thank you very much to our special guests today, 
Uh, Tilly Collins from the Centre for Environmental Policy and Bonnie Waring from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment, both at Imperial College London. And thanks also to Michael LePage and Adam Vaughan from New Scientist. And do go and read their stuff in the magazine this week and every week. Uh, Goodbye for now and take care. Thank you so much. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.